Take those Bibles out, open them up to Acts chapter 28, looking at 11 through 31. Any uh, Scooby-Doo fans here? Anybody a Scooby-Doo fan? Maybe, maybe not these days. There's some woke stuff going on. But I never was a huge Scooby-Doo fan, but um, we got a newer vehicle at Christmas time and has DVD players in the back. And somehow one of the DVDs that made it into our car is an old Scooby-Doo. Um, is the, and the kids are like liking it. I'm like, turn that off. Oh, God. It's just it's not, not a fan personally. But was thinking about Scooby as I was reading Acts chapter 28. Uh, him and the gang were playing some trivia, and the gang was asked, name one of the biggest animals you might find on a safari. And Scooby says, rhino. And they said, I know you do, Scooby, but give someone else a go at it this time. Okay? Get it? Okay. What does Scooby say when Shaggy mistakenly clips the red wire instead of the white? ruh Okay, you guys got that. Uh, what does Scooby tell the gang when they ask where the evil mastermind went? Rout row, ring row. Okay. Right. Uh, what does Scooby do say when he catches a bad guy not telling the truth? Rizzo rye. It's a lie. Okay. Nobody. Okay. I'm, I'm going with this. Okay. We're, it's in the notes. You have to do it. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay. What does Scooby do say when he finishes a prayer? Amen. Okay. What does Scooby-Doo say when he reads Acts 28 and Paul's journey finally reaches its destination? Oh, that's good. He says, ah, Rome, sweet Rome. That makes sense now, huh? One last one. I might ask, who's Scooby's favorite pastor to watch on live stream Sunday mornings? Okay. All right. These jokes don't write themselves, friends. Okay. All right. Looking at verse 11 of Acts chapter 28. The title today is Rome, Sweet Rome. Okay. After three months, we sailed on an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered on the island. Interesting fact. Most scholars don't really know why Luke put this in here. Why the front of the ship with the big carving? You guys have seen plenty of movies and pictures, you know, the the big carving of the statue on the front. Why would Luke put this about the twin brothers being the carved image on the front of the ship? It's carved and painted figurehead was a representation of the twin brothers or who were known as the heavenly twins named Castor and Paulus who in Greco-Roman mythology were the sons of Jupiter or Zeus. They were the gods of navigation and patrons of seafarers. Marshall says, some living detail is given to the story by the useless information that is <clears throat> uh, that its sign was the twin brothers, Castor and Paulus, the patrons of navigation, and their constellation Gemini was a sign of good fortune when seen in a storm. Calvin says the sailors had polluted the ship with sacrilege, but Paul was not polluted because he didn't choose it freely. Now in a little application of this, um, for years, uh, I've just, Alistair Begg has been a mentor of mine. And in his study, he went an application route that was kind of this, you know, boycott the ship type of type of a thing you know uh and and of course paul couldn't didn't and wouldn't boycott the ship but you know oftentimes we come to an establishment and we see the twin figureheads posted on the door you know we see the twin figureheads in the mission statement and that causes us to immediately reflex with some kind of boycott or something like that and of course we're going through that in our culture these days and this is not to say that there's not a place for the boycott. There's not a place for the withholding of the funds as a correction for those individuals that it's just a stern understanding that you're going the wrong way. And yet at the same time, the place where those figureheads are mounted may be the very thing that's taking you to where the Lord would have you share the gospel or, or where it's an opportunity to speak the gospel. 
And so for me, you know, um, you know, you might be might be buying less Bud Light these days, right? Or you might be shopping at Target less these these days or whatnot. And we all can feel that and and are prayerful about how we respond in that. Uh, It was interesting for me. I was um, with my cousin going through Ben the other day, visiting Ashley and Tim in the hospital. And as we're driving to the hospital, he's like, oh, pull over right here. It's this store in Bend where uh, we sell some of our beef. And it's just this kind of a farm to table type store, you know, and I'm like, oh man, this is awesome. It's a place for local farmers and ranchers to sell their, their product, their commodity. This is incredible. And as I'm going in the door, what do I see right there on the window going in, right? The the beautiful rainbow flag and might as well throw a few more colors in there too, because we don't know what the heck we're doing these days. Okay. And you, and you have this flag there on the door. And what is one of my first thoughts is, man, it's unfortunate for Justin that he's selling his beef here because I wouldn't shop here and I wouldn't bring my stuff here. But then as I walked in and as I spent some time in there, a woman came and began speaking with us. And she was a, a, a merchant, someone who was selling her beef there from Shasta County and from Klamath Falls area and just opened up this great opportunity to begin talking and just bringing in some things of the Lord and encouraging her. And as I walked out, I thought, Man, if that was what it was all about, was seeing a little flag on a window and it was just over for me and I'm just going to go walk in the park by myself, I may be missing out on the very opportunity around the very people that need the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So whatever you've got going on in your life and you're around Castor and Pollux, the twin figureheads, you might just be praying, Lord, what do you have me here for? And what great opportunities may be in store? Moving on, you know, that's one of those, like, I don't think that's the main point of the text, but people are wondering, why did he mention that this was on the ship, okay? And a little bit of application there for us. Verses 12 through 14. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed there three days. From there, we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day came to Petoli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. <clears throat> and so you have uh, just the ship, uh, the, the joy, voyage of the ship. We've had the map up over the last few weeks, and we can throw it up whenever there's kind of some voyage here. He's going around the toe of Italy. He lands at a place called Petui, right? Named such because it was believed this is where the great fish spit out Jonah to get him to Nineveh. So they named it Petui. Oh, cautious eyes looking at me there. <laughs> Ah, uh, I think I've been made, right? Okay, so Patoli, right? I just think of a spit every time I read it. <clears throat> uh, but the <clears throat> one interesting thing is they travel approximately 200 miles in one day. Uh, there was some serious favor, the wind at their back. <clears throat> Verse 14, it was there where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. You might underline that phrase, we found brethren. <clears throat> I didn't do my vocal warm-ups driving down in the car today. It's embarrassing in front of the family when you have to... So still have a little <clears throat> stuff in there. We found brethren speaks and shows that they were searching for fellowship. They had a preoccupation with Christian fellowship. They found it... Because they were what? Looking for it. They were searching for it. All right? It's not surprising that there were Christians in Petoli. It had a cosmopolitan population, including a colony of the Jews. But this was a mark of Paul wherever he went. Back in Acts 21.4, it says, And finding disciples, we stayed with them for seven days. So they found disciples, they found Christians when they were in new towns, Because they were looking for brothers. The gathering of God's people is a priority, friends. It's a priority. It's a reality. And it will always be a priority for God's people who are in touch with his son. Jesus loves being with his bride. We should love being with his bride. Beg says, if you and I are able to go to another community... Without a priority of seeking out the companionship of others who love Jesus, it's an indication of the cooling of our affection for Jesus. Summertime, vacation time, 
going to be traveling. Are you going to be traveling? Make sure to be looking for those gathering of the saints. Love the bride of Christ locally and regionally and globally. It's a good word. I think even for people that are moving, so often I meet people who move and they tell me, hey, I've been in Prineville for three years and we're just starting to search for churches. Guys, the priorities are way out of whack in that, in that, all right? I also meet people that say, hey, we've moved to Prineville. This is our first Sunday here. We're here in, we've looked at all the churches online. We've listened to all the churches online. We've listened to you the last three weeks and we're here, man, like this is where the Lord's leading us, all right? And those are people that you see that they have a hot connection to the Lord because they understand the reality and the priority of Christian fellowship. There's no condemnation. Some of you are like, I was the guy that, like, hey, it's great. We're learning, right? We're learning ecclesiology. And the love that Jesus has for the church is the same love that we ought to have for a whole host of reasons. They had hospitable fellowship as they stayed there with them for a whole week for those seven days. And I just want to encourage you guys, look around to be the ones that bring that hospitable fellowship I've been here 14 years this June, and regularly throughout those years, one thing that I've heard about our church is that we're so loving and we're so welcoming. And what's so great about that is I can just give all the glory to Jesus. I don't even know how that happens, you know? I kind of just sit back and I hear that and I'm like, boy, I know that's just not me. That's everybody here that the Holy Spirit's done that work. And, and I encourage you to be those people, be those people that you're looking across the room and there's somebody new and you just go after them and you're inviting them to lunch that Sunday and you're just inviting them into your home and to dinner that week and you're getting their phone number and you're texting them that day that it was good to see you. How can I be praying for you this week? Be the welcoming one. So often we think that somebody else will do it. The only problem is somebody else is thinking, Somebody else will do it, all right? So be looking for the people that are looking for fellowship and draw them in, bring them in. It's an awesome thing to find Christians now so far towards Rome in Paul's journey, but it just shows the impact that the gospel has had those last 40 years. Now, uh, Luke, when he wrote this, may have said, I don't remember much of the beautiful harbor in Petoli, and I think we've got a picture of the beautiful harbor or the three volcanoes that can be seen. Uh, you know, that, those weren't the things that stuck out to them about Patoli, but it was the, uh, the Christian fellowship and the camaraderie and the encouragement that happened there. Interesting thing about um, Patoli is that uh, the ruins of the submerged city of Patoli today are the remains of submerged suburbs. The coastline, which starts from the port of today's Pozzoli, was affected by a phenomenon of Brady sizeism where nature takes over human life by flooding the structures, but then today return to the surface. So um, perhaps on our footsteps of Paul tour through the Mediterranean, maybe sort of, maybe we'll hit up this island and see these volcanoes. And so it goes on to say, and so we went toward Rome. The fourth lap of the journey would be by land, not by sea. After a few miles, they'll join what's called the famous Appian Way, which led straight north to Rome, and which Richard Longnecker calls the oldest, straightest, and most perfectly made of all the Roman roads. And we may have a picture of that too. I can't remember what all got uploaded to this week. But the original Roman road called the Appian Way, the straightest and the longest of Roman roads. Isn't that incredible? Paul walked along this as with the, the other prisoners and the soldiers and the travelers. And verse 15 tells us, and from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. So they still would have 125 miles to go on land, but these believers meet up with them from Rome. So the believers go 125 miles to meet up with Paul, and then they turn and travel the 125 miles back. There's a a town here called Appi Forum, three inns that we read in uh, Cicero's writings. He mentions three inns here in Appi Forum. He says, next Appi Forum, filled Eni to choke with navish publicans and boatmen folk. And so uh, another piece of culture that speaks of this place where Paul 
went. But Paul's there and he sees these believers come. They had traveled 125 miles, it says. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. What else do we see about the reality and priority of Christian fellowship? Not only do they seek after fellowship and find those brothers, but here we see that fellowship brings encouragement. Paul might have been saying as he was going along the road, I wonder if those believers are here in Rome still and how they're doing and if they remember me. And as he looks up down the long road, he sees from a distance a number of Christians coming. And as he sees them, he takes courage. Stott says, it must have been an emotional experience for Paul to meet personally the first residents in the city of his dreams and the first members of the church to which he had addressed his great theological and ethical treatise called the Book of Romans, right? Written in 57 AD. I think we're at about 64 AD uh, at this point. So he sees these believers coming. He thanks God and he takes courage. And in the Greek, this word courage means daring boldness. He might have been at the end of himself after all that he's gone through, the storms of weeks in Euroclidon, the typhoon, you know, and, and being on the island and being in the shipwreck and, fly, you know, going again, just all of this stuff. And maybe now it's been a long hike and he's tired, right? Maybe he didn't have the Merrill hiking boots, you know, they didn't arrive in the mail in time for this journey, you know? And so he's just going along in his flip-flops, you know, and he's, he's just tired and wore out and just not even sure what's going to happen ahead in his visit with Nero. And as he sees Christians, you know, you see a little more resolve and a little more grit in him. And he gets daring boldness. And that is what the word says will happen to us. It's what Jonathan was able to do for David when David was discouraged. It says, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose, 1 Samuel 23, 16. And he went to David in the woods and he strengthened his hand in God. And that's what these Roman believers did. They went to Paul at three ends and they strengthened his hand in the Lord. And it wasn't necessarily because they were friends or they knew each other because they didn't know each other. It wasn't because they had a natural affection for one another. It couldn't be. They were from completely different places in the world. It wasn't because they shared concerns about the nature of Roman society. It was because they had that common denominator of saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian fellowship is awesome. And Luke is not telling so much about the geography or the panorama, but the fellowship that's taking place. Uh, And so we, we do the same thing. There's an old hymn that says, I love you with the love of the Lord. I see you in the glory of my King. And I love you with the love of the Lord. We love each other with the love of the Lord. Take the time to stick around on a Sunday and hang out for donut fellowship time or hang out in the beautiful courtyard and enjoy the sunshine, the spring sunshine. Be together, enjoy the sanctuary and the fellowship with believers. Why? Because we love you with the love of the Lord and we see you in the glory of our King. You might be thinking, I can't hang around these people. They know all the dark details of my life. You know what? We're worried about all the dark details of our lives and how we need salvation. We're not condemning you. We got enough of Satan condemning us. And, uh, and we just want to love on you. And, and just we're all a bunch of beggars who know where the bread is. You know, So just hang out and nibble on some crumbs with us uh, today. Uh, Marshall says, their arrival encouraged Paul by showing that he had friends in the capital city. The curious feature noted by recent commenters is that commentators is that these Christians from Rome disappear once Paul reaches the city and all his dealings are with the Jews now. But his main purpose was to show how Paul behaved toward the Jews since the question of the Jews and Gentiles in relationship to the gospel is one of the dominant themes of the book. Let's move along. Verse 16. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captains of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldiers uh, who guarded him. And so after all of the hardship, the last number of weeks we've been in Acts, all that was suffered on the trip to Rome, many of the prisoners were probably hoping that they'd get a get out of jail free card after all they'd experienced. You ever have something like that go down? You're like, something hard happens and you're like, 
it happens at school and every, you know, it's like, surely they're just going to dismiss us for the rest of the day. And then you got to go to that government, U.S. government final, you know, and you're like, but come on, you know. And uh, it's like, we just went through all of this together. Prisoners were probably saving soldiers' lives as they floated on the same piece of driftwood together. All of this, no. The centurions were faithfully completing their duty and they would bring Paul and the other prisoners all the way to Rome. Paul was given some special treatment, a private dwelling under house arrest. Luke tells us that Paul was accorded what was called custodia militaria, which permitted him to live in his own lodging and remain there under surveillance of a Roman soldier by whom he was chained by the right wrist. But we see this, if you're a Christian and you're an evangelist and you're about the commission of Jesus, we, we would see this chaining to a Gentile, to a Roman soldier, as an unlikely fellowship. You see, Paul wasn't only chained to the soldier, but equally true, that soldier was chained to Paul. <laughs> oh, how the turntables of, how the, right? Okay, right? Yeah, that. Okay, so the, the Roman guard is stuck with like one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever seen. And the result of such a chaining was that Paul would become a talking point among members of the praetorium guard. Read Philippians chapter 1 and you see that the whole guard in the house of Caesar is talking about him. And so as Paul is chained to this garden, he's writing letters to the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Philippians, to Philemon, writing about salvation, praying prayers over the church, probably dictating it or writing it and reading it out loud. These soldiers are getting the New Testament in, you know, written right in front of them, probably read right in front of them. The soldiers would see how Paul lived his life, just as if I were chained to you, I'd found, find out a great deal to, about you, or if you were chained to your favorite author, you know, what would that be like? I was thinking about how, man, if I could just be chained to Jocko Willink for a little while, that would just be so cool and good for me. And then I was like, you know what? I'm kind of chained to him via podcast, especially I'll fall asleep listening to, pod, to Jocko at night and I have it on a sleep timer, but sometimes the heat from my ear pushes the button again on my earbud. And so all night long, I'll listen to Jocko and I have these incredible dreams that Jocko and I are best friends and he's coming to stay at my house and have a sleepover. But one thing I'm noticing is he won't shut up and I need to get a word in here and tell him how much he means to me. But, you know, and it's like, could you just, oh, it was on. Okay, that's why he wasn't being, okay. So uh, anyways, could you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul as he's writing the New Testament, right? The soldier who would be able to say he lives what he writes, or maybe he'd say he writes so that he may learn to live it. They heard his prayers. They listened to his dictated letters. And perhaps we will see these guards the day we get to heaven. Wouldn't that be special? His imprisonment doesn't silence him. It wasn't an impediment, but it was a platform to share the gospel, to make the most of every opportunity. Looking at verses 17 through 19, and it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they'd come together, he said to them, men and brethren, though I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans who, when they'd examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar not that I had anything of which to uh, accuse my nation. And so notice, you know, it, it was three days later that Paul just gets right into it and he calls for the Jews to come. He had a heart for his brothers. So he had people go out to the surrounding probably 40 synagogues and do some recon work and bring in these Jews. And he just has a very unique and great approach that we could learn from. He has a soft approach he has a, an approach of initiative, a thoughtful approach, and a right approach. Very softly, he just, you know, comes with the slippers of identification rather than the boots of confrontation. And he calls them brothers. He paves the way for further opportunity with them. The soft approach often opens doors and covers a multitude of sin. 
Uh, so much so that the result from the Jews of the soft approach was, we want to hear what your views are. But if he would have come in just ramming and jamming and a bit offended and a chip on his shoulder from the way the Jews treated him, and maybe I can beat the Jews to Rome and then I can tell them what really went down and tell the whole story, we're going to find the Jews are going to say, we didn't even know anything that's been going on over there. And then you're just feeding them with a bunch of conflict information that they're like, man, and now we're a little curious about what's, you know, what's wrong with you and you seem to bring problems wherever you go. I had a guy come to the church once, and on day one, he says, look, I just want you to know that I don't like church drama, and I won't be a part of it. And in my mind, I'm thinking, <laughs> I will be quiet from then on. Okay. So the history with this, one, no, I'm just joking. Okay. He has the initiative. His approach was one with initiative. Love takes the initiative. It's what the gospel has done for us. Jesus went out of his way and pursued us. And we do that to others, reaching out. The opening move was Paul's here. In verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I've called you to see you and to speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I'm bound with this chain. And so because he, he comes with this soft approach, he has the ability to enter in the whole reason for it all. The Lord Jesus Christ, who's the hope of Israel, the Messiah. And he's just coming because of all the promises of Jesus. And Paul might ring their bell by mentioning the hope of Israel. As a loyal Jew, as Paul saw it, he was wearing a Roman fetter because of his real loyal loyalty to Judaism. It was something that the Jews would have to give attention to as he speaks of their hope, the hope of Israel. And John Calvin says of the hope of Israel, the covenant of adoptions was based on Jesus. The promise of salvation confirmed on Jesus. The fullness of the kingdom depended on Jesus. And the ruined, hopeless condition of the people increased their desire for Jesus. And so he's going to have an opportunity here to speak of the hope of Israel, Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the prophet. And it's because of Jesus that he is bound with a Roman fetter. 21. Then they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. So they haven't even heard anything. It's a bit of a miracle that they didn't know of Paul and, you know, all the ways that he was persecuted. Um, if you study kind of the history of Rome, Christianity, and Judaism, Judaism already went through some problems with Rome in Rome because of conflict about who the Messiah was. So they like to fly a little more under the radar considering the, consider, uh, concerning these um, issues. And so I think even if they would have heard of it, they wouldn't have made much of it because they didn't want to draw Roman attention uh, to themselves. So they say, we, we haven't even heard anything about it, but really just a miracle here in verse 22. We desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. You guys, this is a, this is a Christian's dream. This is an evangelist's dream to have the people you've been praying for say, I want to hear more about what you've got to say. <gasps> like, this is glorious. It reminds me of one branding I was at. And it, I was with some people that, kind of intimidating, they were totally pros, they had their act together, but they were very carnal. By 10 a.m., they'd been sipping the bottle, and they were already just carnal and a little mean in their stupor. And, uh, and by lunchtime, when, you know, the culture is, they provide a delicious meal for you at the branding, right? Um, we're all sitting there around, and, and the guy says, hey, uh, what's your favorite sermon to preach? Like, everybody there, like, drops their fork, and, oh, you, know, you hear the, oh, my goodness, you know? And just, you, if you know me very long, you know my favorite sermon to preach is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? And, and so I just... It's the resurrection of Jesus, and here's why. Blah, 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 blah. And it just opened up this great opportunity to share about Jesus. And, you know, he said, oh, I'm just a pagan. And his wife said, oh, you're not a pagan. I wouldn't have married if you were, you, if you were a pagan. Penguin. Um, <laughs> it's illegal in most states. All right. And, uh, and by the end of the conversation, like, 
she just gets up and gives me a big hug. And you can just tell like the Holy Spirit's moving and there's an excitement. And you can just be praying in general over this relationship because it kind of has ebbed, but it seems to be maybe flowing again. So just be praying like, Lord, reach the ranchers uh, during these season, the season that it is right now. Um, but when you have somebody say, hey, what's your favorite thing about your religion? <laughs> you know, be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you, right? All right. Uh, so, uh, verse 23 says, so when they had appointed him a day, I mean, this is just incredible. Hey, come back on Monday and tell me everything you have to say about the hope of Israel. Oh, right. Um, so many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. So Paul was no lightweight. He had plenty of stamina to just morning to evening, right? You almost have a Eutychus moment again, falling, falling out of the window, right? And he's just morning to evening. I will tell you from the law and the prophets why Jesus is the Messiah, the hope of Israel, the savior of the world. And you know, this is, this is wonderful and great. And we love apologetics but unless the Holy Spirit opens a person's heart to repent and to receive, then, then it's just not going to happen. There's, there's this combination, right, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we just pray for both that, that the Lord would grant repentance and that people would believe in Jesus Christ. And here you just see that Paul using everything he's got, man, you could just p- picture all of the all of the sermons he's ever preached to the book of Acts, all of the epistles, and he's in Rome, which has been his dream for four years or longer. And he's just, he probably just busts out the super soaker of the gospel and just gives everything he's got. His best sermon, his best Scooby-Doo jokes. I mean, he is laying it all on the table, right? And it just doesn't, doesn't have the results as he's thoughtful about the law. He's thoughtful about the prophets. He's preaching Jesus, the Christ. And in verse 24, some were persuaded. And the language means they yielded to it. And some disbelieved. Or the language says some would not believe. It just shows at the end of the day, you can do everything you can to try to persuade and some people, even though they, they know that you're right, but they will not, right? And so in verses 25 through 27, so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. So, you know, they didn't agree. There's a conflict, hotly disputed, the language speaks of. Some believe, so we do rejoice in that, right? That's wonderful. We'll see those Christians on that day. But there seems to be a majority that do not And when they get up to leave, Paul just has the final word. Hey, before you go, you need to know something. And he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 6. I think it's verse 9. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah, the prophet, to our fathers. Because we've got a father-like son thing happening right here. The Holy Spirit said, go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. And we know that Paul knew this scripture well, would speak it before, but Jesus also would use this scripture uh, to speak of uh, the uh, the hard-heartedness of the Jews in that day. You know, it's been said that there are none so blind that will not see. And there are none so deaf that will not hear. And here we have just these Jews that, and, you know, just as much as they can, they won't hear Paul in the gospel. F.F. Bruce said, the effect of his ministry, divinely ordained though it is, will be but to make the deaf still more deaf. And it was Bruce that said, there are none so deaf as those who will not hear. To make the blind still more blind, there are none so blind as who will not see. And Marshall says, 
This is a divine judgment upon them because they themselves had made their hearts impervious to the word of God. And I wonder here today, you're here at church. God bless you. Glad that you're here. But maybe you're on the same level as the people that showed up for the appointed meeting with Paul. And you heard, you heard it out. You even chuckled at the Scooby-Doo joke. All right, good on you, right? But maybe you're someone who's impervious to the word of God and you've made your heart that way. That's your doing. And the language in the book of Romans speaks of you heaping up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath. The tense is that you are actively rejecting Christ. Every time you hear the gospel, every time he's touching your heart and encouraging you to turn to him, you're heaping up for yourself judgment on the day of wrath. You are making yourself impervious to the word of God. And Marshall says they've allowed themselves to become deaf and blind for fear that they might hear and see the disturbing word of God and so receive the healing from God. Have you ever been there where you're just like... I just know if I open up the Bible, it's going to touch my heart and change me. And I just can't have that. I mean, that is hard-heartedness. That is pride. That is insolent behavior. Marshall goes on to say, God's word brings the diagnosis of sin, which is painful to hear and accept. But at the same time, it wounds in order to heal. Once a person deliberately refuses the word, there comes a point when he's deprived of the capacity to receive it. And I hope you're not there today. I hope by God's mercy you've come and you're hearing and you're realizing I have been hardening my heart to the Lord, but I feel his grace today that there's another chance today and I'll take it and I'll take it. It's a stern warning to those who trifle with the gospel. Read this week of Morris, who was an 82-year-old man. He went to the doctor to get a physical. A few days later, the doctor saw Morris walking down the street with a gorgeous young woman on his arm. A couple of days later, the doctor spoke to Morris and said, you're really doing great, aren't you? Morris replied, just doing what you said, doc. Get a hot mama and be cheerful. The doctor said, I didn't say that. I said, you've got a heart murmur, be careful. That's a set. Too soon, Bob. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Man, that's what Paul is doing as they walk out. He says, one more thing before you leave. You've got a heart murmur. Be careful, right? You're blind and you're deaf and you're walking away. Oh, man, so much to say. So little time. My goal is to finish out the book, you guys. Uh, J. Alexander commented on this Isaiah passage. He said, the three distinguishing agencies at work in the response of the human uh, response to the gospel are, number one, the ministerial agent of the prophet. So we see that working right here in the book of Acts. The prophet is speaking and ministering. Number two, the judicial agency of God. And so sovereignly, we have God's justice taking place where he does do a work of hardening a man's heart after they've hardened their heart. And then the suicidal agency of the listeners themselves. And these guys were suicidal spiritually in the sense that they had all the life that they needed in front of them, but they would not take it. And so the uh, judicial agency of God hardens and makes even more blind. And John Stott says, although our minds find it hard to reconcile these three perspectives with each other, since it's difficult to ascribe the same situation to uh, three agencies simultaneously, yet all three are true and must be held fast with equal tenacity. Ministerial agency of the prophet, the judicial agency of God, the suicidal agency of the listeners themselves. Verse 29, uh, guys, Only 31 verses in our text today. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a uh, great dispute among themselves, or they argued hotly between themselves. Verse 30, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. So 
For two years, he was able to be there, have some sort of freedom. He didn't get to go out on his own, but he was able to rent his own home. The language speaks of him paying for it himself. So maybe, and the custom of uh, the Roman law was that prisoners could work their trade to pay for such a thing. We know he was chained to the soldier. Might have been a hard thing to do to make tents while you're chained to a soldier. But, you know, none of that's all that important. Uh, But he was chained up in that home under house arrest. But he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.9, but the word of God isn't chained. And he's able to just keep ministering. Verse 31, this is the last verse of the book of Acts, you guys. Uh, This, was it yesterday or so? Yesterday? Uh, Lindsay was like, are you finishing the book of Acts this week? I'm like, I mean, maybe I've got 25 pages of notes. A normal sermon is 9 to 12. So it seems like I've got another one in here. She's like, just finish this. <laughs> Please. I'm begging you. Okay, so that's the goal. We'll see. We'll see if we make it. Um, <laughs> what did he do in that rented home? The Airbnb, perhaps three floors up from the Roman road, many of them were preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. This is just such a rich uh, verse where he would preach, he would herald the good news of the gospel, and he would teach the intricate details of the kingdom of God. But they don't necessarily have to conflict with another preaching and teaching. Stott says... um, Oh man, I don't even know where my notes somewhere down here. Yeah, we'll forget that. Basically, he's saying sometimes we've put too much of a distinction between preaching and teaching when they both often have both uh, in them. Now, let's do a quick timeline of the final years of of Paul's life. So here we have him under house arrest for another two years. So it's been two years um, that he was in prison in Caesarea. Remember, and then man, I don't know, almost a year or six months floating in a boat and shipwrecked and all that and the island stops and all that all the way to Rome. So then we're going to have another two years where he's going to be under house arrest and he's doing these incredible things. And then uh, he has two to four years of freedom where it's believed he even goes to Spain and shares the gospel. And then he's going to be arrested again. But the timeline is uh, AD 60 to 62 is this ministry in Rome under house arrest. He's going to write the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. The runaway slave Onesimus will visit him there. That's how Philemon uh, is written. Um, He writes to Philemon, prepare a guest room because I hope to visit you as a result of your prayers. So it's believed, some disagree, some think that this is where Paul ends up dying. It doesn't really fit the timeline super well. It's not all that important, but uh, interesting to kind of think about. Uh, By 62 AD, he's released from Rome. And uh, some believe because no one ended up coming for the trial uh, to accuse him from Jerusalem. And so kind of all of that was for nothing uh, in the case of the Jews there. Uh, All told, during his ministry, the Apostle Paul spent roughly five and a half to six years uh, as a prisoner in a prison. And John Stott said, by his prison experience, Paul's perspective was adjusted, his horizon extended, his vision clarified, and his witness enriched. Uh, In 62 AD, he returned to the Aegean area. 62 to 66 AD, he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, and mentions city, uh, cities that are not mentioned in the book of Acts. So more ministry and church planting that happened in those times. In 67 AD, he was rearrested and wrote 2 Timothy, the last of the pastoral epistles. In chapters 4, uh, verse 6, there's a significant shift in tenor. Um, and you may think that there's still maybe some life to live uh, Paul is, I'm going to read this, uh, I think it's from Life Application Commentary. Paul's arrested again, perhaps in uh, Troas, sent back to Rome where he wasn't under house arrest, but served time in the Mamertine prison. And I have pictures of the Mamertine prison for you guys today. A deep cistern where prisoners would be lowered in by rope and receive food in buckets. 
The state rarely incarcerated common criminals there, but kept the Mamertine prison for political prisoners doomed for execution by being thrown off the Tarpeian rock. Enemies of the state, such as Jargatha and Vercingetorix, were often strangled in the Tertullium. Sullust, a Roman writer in 40 BC, describes the uh, Tulane—I'm sorry, you guys—Tulanum as about 12 feet deep, closed all around by strong walls and a stone vault. Its aspect is repugnant and fearsome from its neglect, darkness, and stench. And so while he was in this prison, Paul penned 2 Timothy. There's a great movie out about the Apostle Paul. I think it's called Paul or something like that. You guys should watch it. Um, And he wrote 2 Timothy, waited for uh, his parchments, his cloak, and his friends uh, to come visit. And maybe something you might want to do on this Lord's Day is just spend time reading 2 Timothy. We don't have time to quote all the things that were going through Paul's mind here in this prison. But 2 Timothy uh, would be a good read for you to know how his final days uh, were spent. 67 to 68 AD is that imprisonment in the Mamertine prison. Neither the Bible nor any other history says how or when Paul died. According to Christian tradition, Paul was beheaded in Rome during the reign of Nero around the mid-60s at uh, the Fontaine Abbey, which in English is the Three Fountains Abbey. So, oh, Trey Fontaine. I don't have my glasses on. Trey Fontaine Abbey. By comparison, tradition has Peter being crucified upside down. Paul's Roman citizenship accorded him the more merciful death by beheading. Uh, Just a few final quotes. Uh, Last night as I was reading commentaries, Lindsay was cleaning up the kitchen and I was like, oh, just finished John Stott's commentary on Acts. Oh, just finished I. Howard Marshall's commentary on Acts. Oh, just finished F.F. Bruce's commentary. You know how it is. And then Kindle comes up like, rate this book. And I'm like, ain't nobody got time for that. So Five stars, we're done. Okay, but uh, just listen to some of these concluding thoughts here. Longnecker says, In seeming to leave his book unfinished, Luke was implying that the apostolic proclamation of the gospel in the first century began a story that will continue until the consummation of the kingdom of Christ. And when you read the book of Acts, it just it doesn't really end, does it? There's a movement called Acts 29. You might know Mark Driscoll started that. I always love the, the title of that, Acts 29, because there's only 28 chapters of Acts. We're living in Acts 29, I believe. You know, uh, It's not concluded yet. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says, Luke's final word is a legal expression. With it, the record of Acts closes on a triumphant note. Quote, victory of the word of God, says J.A. Bangle. Quote, Paul at Rome, the apex of the gospel, the end of Acts. It began at Jerusalem. It finishes at Rome. Hear, O church, thou hast thy pattern. It is for thee to preserve it and to guard the deposit. Oh, love that. It begins in Prineville. And it ends out there somewhere. Uh. Russell and I had our first electric guitar concert on Wednesday. We both, for nine months, been taking electric guitar so we can learn how to shred. Played at General Duffy's on Wednesday. Oh, so much fun. And I was working out that day with Lucas and Todd Teske. And I'm like, guys, today I'm fulfilling a dream of mine to play lead guitar. And I was like, guys, do you guys have any dreams that you like want to do? And, and it's just kind of stirring in me that there's things that, I'm 41, you know, I'm the old guy on the stage, right? There's still time to learn. There's still time to do things. And one thing that the Lord is growing me in is I'm teaching myself Nepali. And I'm like, okay, we've been seven years to Nepal, seven trips to Nepal. We're starting to go twice a year. I got to learn how to talk to these people. And there's like no resources out there. It's horrible. And so I'm basically creating a Nepali curriculum if you're an artist, I need your help. Okay, just easy. You know, I need some artists because I got to draw pictures of this stuff to implant it into memory, okay? And I'm just like, this, it begins in Prineville and you got this kid that grew up on a farm, you know, that welds and, you know, punches cows sometimes and preaches in a church and all this and loves his local body. But I'm realizing this isn't the end, you guys. 
There's a whole world out there that needs to hear about Jesus. And it's a costly thing to get there. And it might mean hours of sounding like a dork in front of your kids. You know, and they're like, it's wrong, dad. That's not how they say it when we're in Nepal. Look, son. Okay. Oh, but I love it. Hero church. We have our pattern starts in Jerusalem. It ends in Rome. Okay. And it's for thee to preserve it and to guard its deposit. John Stott says, so acts ends with the prospect of a mission radiating from Rome to the world. Luke's description of Paul preaching with all boldness and without hindrance symbolizes a wide open door through which we in our day have to pass. The acts of the apostles finished long ago, but the acts of the followers of Jesus will continue until the end of the world and their words will spread to the ends of the earth. Worship team, come on up. I think it was Stott that also said the book of Acts ends kind of abruptly. It seems like it should have some more. That's because it does. We will never get to the end of Acts until Christ returns. You might even say we're living in Acts chapter 29. And then Hebrews 11 is what I want to close with. And this is the text I'm speaking. Pray for next Monday, the baccalaureate service for the graduating seniors. I'll be speaking at it. The hall of faith. Paul closes out the hall or whoever it was, Apollos, maybe we don't know, says, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdom, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received the dead, raised back to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So when you read the book of Acts, you just read of these heroes and these champions and these adventurers and the things they did and the things they saw and the ways that they just trusted in the Lord and they saw him move in power and in might and people got saved and churches were planted and the Lord worked miracles to validate the gospel and all of these things is this Acts doesn't have an end. We're living in it now. It just rings with what Hebrews says. All those guys from the book of Acts will not be made perfect apart from us. Guys, we get to be a part of this. We're living it now. And that's why the Holy Spirit was sent, so that we could have boldness and courage. And, uh, apart from any natural talent or ability that we have, The Lord can just propel us past where our ability stops and bring great power and grace to live the light in this world.